the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first had also went in and saw and believed. Hmm, important. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. As she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one, of the he- one at the head and one at the feet, they, sat, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned, turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Why, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he, and that he had said these things to her. Amen. While you're standing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to old school. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you uh, to acknowledge, you don't have to say it, but just hear me as I give you our title for today. Uh, From this passage on Easter Sunday, I want to use this for a thought. Thank God for chapter 20. You may be seated. Thank God for chapter 20. History is replete with important things. Things we should always be careful not to ever forget. Whether we're talking about world history or especially for the believer, biblical history or the history of the Christian faith or Christianity. Within the Christian faith and experience, there are dates, events, people, places, things, dispensations, doctrines, and theological concepts that are indeed extremely important. Things like the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, the flood in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, the repopulation of the world in Genesis 9 and 10, the bondage in Egypt, the Passover, the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness, the conquest of the promised land by Joshua and the people of Israel, the history of Israel and Judah. All these things are important. The exile of God's people, the prophecies of Christ that were told hundreds of years before Christ showed up. Then 
as we make our way to the New Testament, the actual birth of Christ is important. We know it's important because we celebrate it every year on 25th of December. It's called Christmas, and the whole world stops to recognize the birth of our Lord. Then we have the life of Christ. It's important that we remember, Brother Robert, the life of Christ. Then, certainly, we can't ever forget the death of Christ. We talked about it on Friday night, Good Friday. It was solemn. It was sad as we looked at chapter 19 and talked about the fact that Jesus died. He hung his head in the locks of his shoulders and died. And I submit to you that we should never forget that he died. The crucifixion, the execution of Jesus. All of these things are extremely important, but they would all be pointless and meaningless without the resurrection. The resurrection is of the utmost importance. Uh, Theological concepts are important. Uh, soteriology is important. Pneumatology is important. Even your eschatology is important. And it's important to have a position on those things and to remember those things. But all of these things would be empty without the resurrection. Systematic theology collapses without the linchpin of the resurrection. I would argue that next to the actual creation of mankind and the world, uh, the resurrection is the single most important event that's ever happened in all the history of the world. On Friday night, as I said before, we looked at John chapter 19. You'll recall that uh, John chapter 19 covers the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus. It was a horrid, terrible, somber, and sickening event. Friday was that way. Question is, where would we be if the story had ended in chapter 19? Where would we be if that had happened? Where would that leave us? The Apostle Paul said this about that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Verse 17 of that same chapter, Paul says, If Christ has not raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. N.T. Wright says this about the resurrection. N.T. Wright says, The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter, he says, is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. In his book, Jesus himself, Andrew Murray writes this of the resurrection. He says, a dead Christ I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. The resurrection is important. If 
the story had ended in chapter 19 that would leave us eternally lost and separated from God. Satan, if it had ended in 19, would still have the keys. We would still be under the penalty and the power of sin. There would be no salvation. There would be no redemption. There would be no reconciliation, no deliverance, no power, and no plan for us. There would be no joy, no happiness, and no had it ended in 19. But I'm so glad. I told you, Brother Sam got me covered today. No matter if y'all make a noise or sound, Brother Sam said he going to help me today. I'm so glad. Is there anybody else here that's glad? That we serve a good God who decided not to leave us in chapter 19. He didn't end the story there. He blessed us with chapter 20. Chapter 20 is what differentiates us from all other belief systems in the world and the religions of the world because it is in chapter 20 that there is a rolled away stone, an empty tomb, and discarded grave clothes that prove the reality and the fact that Jesus got up. It's in chapter 20. And so I'm so glad. It proves that he lives. Join me now, if you will, in the first 18 verses of chapter 20 as we take a look at how all of this plays out and unfolds. We'll take a look at some of the events and some of the characters or people that are included in this passage of Scripture. First of all, I like to look, if I can, and if you'll join me, at first person who stands out to me, and that person is Mary. Let's take a brief look at Mary. In verses 1 through 11, we see Mary. First thing I need to point out is that Mary is likely alone on the first visit to the tomb in the first two verses of chapter uh, 20. But she is not the lone character in verses 1 through 11. Peter and John make an appearance, and the synoptics record that the presence of Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, and Joanna, and others, at, the, at some point, they show up as well at the tomb that morning. We don't know when, but she had some company. But we do, we, we can uh, come to the conclusion, uh, if, we, if we decide to, if we search the the, the, the record, we can come to the conclusion that it appears that her first visit, to the tomb. She's alone. Here in John, although there are other people in this passage, here in John's gospel, uh, Mary stands out to me. She, she stands, she leaps off the pages to me. When I look at this story for, for what might be characterized as her strange behavior and her unwavering devotion to Christ. She does some things, so it's Joyce, that just, that just say to me that there's something going on with Mary. Something is happening on the side. Something has happened in the life, and it just jumps out at me. While most of Jesus' followers and disciples had abandoned him in fear and in cowardice at Calvary, Mary stood patiently 
through the agonizing ordeal of watching him die on the cross. When most of the men had tucked tail and run, when most of the disciples had left and fled the scene, Mary and some others are standing there enduring the pain and the heartache of watching their master be crucified. They watched. Now, unable to sleep in the fourth watch of the night, which was, by the way, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, early that Sunday morning, she made her way in the dark, the text says, to the tomb in the garden to see what she thought would be a dead man. Now, that just sounds strange to me. Early, still dark. I was always told, you don't go to the cemetery when it's dark. <laughs> Funny stuff happens. Yeah, you go, matter of fact, make sure you're out of there before the sun goes down. She, do, she, she, she is so devoted and committed, she, she can't sleep. She tosses and turns all night long, kind of like I did last night, <laughs> for a different reason. And Kevin, she gets up between 3 and 6, and she makes her way to the cemetery to see what she firmly believed would be a dead Jesus. She arrives, and when she arrives, she finds that this large stone has been rolled away. Immediately before even looking in, she, she takes off running. She runs to find the disciples of Jesus, and she tells them that the body of their Lord is missing from the tomb. When they heard the news, Peter and John embarked on a foot race. They race each other trying to get there to see what has happened. They, they, they race each other uh, to get to the tomb. John beats Peter to the tomb, but John waits at the door rather than going in. When Peter arrives, he immediately rushes in to the tomb. You'll recall, this is interesting, because you'll recall that this is the exact opposite of the way it played out before when they both had a chance to go in and see Jesus before his trial in chapter 18, verse 16. You remember then that John actually goes in and Peter, out of fear, stays at the door and does not go in. This time, though, John, or Peter, in his impulsiveness, fear no longer is paralyzing him. And in his impulsiveness and inquisitiveness, nature, his nature kicks in and he runs into the tomb to see what happens. John, though, eventually goes in, and they find the tomb when they go in empty. Somebody should have said amen. amen. And grave clothes left behind. This debunks the theory that somebody must have stolen the body. Because if somebody came and stole the body, why would they undress the body and leave the clothes behind? So when they see these left behind discarded grave clothes just laying there in the tomb, John says, surely my Lord has risen. And he believes. He believes that Jesus has been risen from the dead. In verses 10 and 11, uh, it tells us that Peter and John then went back home. They decide after they've seen this to go back home. 
But we're talking about Mary, right? So let's get back to her. Out of Mary's deep devotion to Christ, Mary stays behind to weep and mourn the loss of the Lord. She decides to stay there. Uh, And so as we look at Mary, Mary uh, indeed stands out to me in this passage for, for some of the strange things that she does. Now, to better understand Mary, you've got to know her story. To better understand her behavior, to better understand why she does the things that she is doing, uh, you've got to back up and you've got to know her story. Oftentimes, here it is, oftentimes when people are misunderstood, uh, I'm not talking about Mary now, I'm talking about me and you. It's because, it's because you've, been, you've caught them late in life and you weren't around or you're unfamiliar with their story. Uh, people are often judged based on their current actions without knowing their past story. And I'm not, again, I'm talking about me and you. And so sometimes we'll look at folks and wonder why they do the things they do, why they act the way they act. Why are they so committed? Why are they so devoted? Why are they so driven? Why are they so focused? Well, you don't know the story. Why do they praise like they do? Why does this dude yell like he does? You don't know the story. You caught me at the end or in the middle. If you had been there, help me, Brother Sam, if you had been there, we have to, we have to be careful of judging folks. We look at Mary and we wonder, this lady's got to be a couple of fries short of a happy meal, going to the cemetery to see a dead man. Doing all, staying behind when the men have left. Uh, but you got to know a story. Um, first bit of, bit of information that sheds light on Mary's situation is the fact that just like Christ uh, is not Jesus' last name, but rather his title, which describes who he is, Magdalene is not Mary's last name but rather a title which describes where she's from. Now, that'll give us a clue, a little bit of a clue about how, why she acts like she does. The, uh, the darkness of this third day morning is not the only darkness that Mary had experienced. Mary uh, had known other darkness. Her name indicates the fact that she was from a little town called Magdala a town that was known for its licentiousness and wickedness, located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Mary, in other words, had come up on the rough side. She had, she had some hard times in her life. She was raised in a rough place where there was wickedness all around, and because of that, she has a story. Not only that, the other important thing about her story is that she had at one point in her life been vexed by seven demons. Seven demons had had possessed her soul and her body and controlled her every action, which had made her life a living hell. But she met a man named Jesus. I thought y'all were going to help me. She met a man named Jesus, and when she met him in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, he cast out her demons. Her life had never been the same since she met Jesus as she goes from a demoniac to a disciple. Her life changed. 
So then now when we know a little bit, that's not all of her story, but we know a little bit of her story. It helps us better understand why she acts like she acts. She had been through some things. She had had some issues. She, so so, so we look, don't be looking because you got issues too. Don't be acting like you all perfect and holy because all of us come from somewhere. All of us have been through something. And, 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 and I would just love, and the reason why uh, I sometimes act like I do is because I got a little Mary in me. Y'all don't look at me funny. I've been through some things. You've been through some things. And so then we, it, it helps us to better understand the reason why we act like we do sometimes. Uh, because, listen, she hadn't forgotten her story. It's important not, not to forget our story. That's why it's hard to be subdued when I do this. I try sometimes. Like Friday night, I tried my best. I said, this is supposed to be a solemn service. I said, well, I'm just not used to being solemn. I don't care if we all talk about he died. That is a reason to celebrate for me. I tried for those of you that were here, but, you know, it's hard for me to remain because I just look back over my life and I think about all that God has done for me. And like Mary, I do strange things sometimes. Like Mary, I act crazy sometimes. Like Mary, you won't understand me all the time. Like Mary, what I do will not always make sense to you. We all been through some things, and we cannot ever forget our story. Uh, and so, first person is Mary. Next thing I like to look at is the risen Christ. Mary in 1 through 11. Then I want to look at the risen Christ in 14 through 17. Uh, as Mary is weeping, she realizes that she isn't alone at the tomb. She sees a man standing near, but she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. She continues to weep. Listen, here's the thing. Jesus is always there. Even when we are so distraught, confused, and distracted that we don't recognize him. He promises us in Hebrews 13 and 5 that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, doesn't he? He promises us that. And Mary in 14 says this, having said this, she turned around uh, and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus, right? She sees him. She doesn't know it's him. He is always, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And then in 15, Jesus asked her two questions. These same two questions that he constantly asks us. Look at what he says. He says, why are you weeping? Or why are you worrying? He asks us the same question. Because we are worry warts. I, I, I know I can speak for myself. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're always cool and calm. Nothing ever ruffles your feathers. But for me, sometimes I worry. 
Jesus says this to his disciples as they are worried about his demise in John chapter 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled or don't worry, don't fret, because I am with you. I am going somewhere to prepare a place for you. And Paul says, be careful for nothing in Philippians. Don't worry about anything. But in prayer, supplication with thanksgiving, he says, let your requests be made known to God. He says, there's this peace that passes all of your ability to understand it that will come over you. And Jesus asked Mary the question, Mary, why are you weeping? Don't you remember what I said? Then he asked this and he asked us the same question. Whom are you seeking? Because if you can answer rightly that question, it will solve all of the dilemmas of life. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Didn't he say that? Jesus says to Mary, Mary, and she doesn't know who he is. Whom are you seeking? If we can answer that question properly, we will solve all of our issues if we seek him first. But she doesn't answer. She answers rather than answering. She answers the question with a question. She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where, he have, where you've laid him and I will take him away. She just ignores the question. And she says, well, she, this, this guy that she doesn't know is Jesus may not even know who the he is or the him is. Where have you laid him? She doesn't even know that he knows who she's talking about. She's so confused and so distraught that she just wants to know where Jesus is. And she doesn't realize that it's Jesus that she's talking to. Verse 16, he speaks one word and the whole mood changes. He simply calls her by her name. And he says, Mary. She suddenly realizes that it's him. Because she felt the same thing down in the, on the inside that she felt when she first met Jesus and he called her by her name then. When he called her the first time, demons trembled and fled and left her. Nobody in her life had ever called her name like Jesus called her name. When he called her name, uh, something happened to her. Suddenly, just like when... The demons fled the first time. Jesus calls her name this time, and something happens. All of her anxiety goes away. She remembers, she reflects, says, Martha, hey, I feel like I felt that day when I first met Jesus, and I was possessed with demons. I was vexed with demons, and this Jesus said my name that day, and the demons left me. Now this gardener, this guy who I think is a gardener, has said my name, and all of my anxiety has fled me. Something's going on here. Ah. Uh, Suddenly, it's gone. all her worry flees. Confusion and chaos suddenly becomes calm. And all she can say is Rabboni, master, teacher. She recognizes that it's him. Is there anybody here today that's been yourself in the midst of a fiery furnace? 
in the midst or out on a stormy sea, in a lion's den full of hungry lions, and the risen Savior called your name and said, Ricky, and I said, Rabboni. Has he ever called your name? Do you remember that time when he called your name? When he calls your name, he's reminding you and me of some things. He's reminding us that he knows us. He knows you better than, than you know yourself. He knows everything about you. And when he calls your name, it is a reminder that he knows you. He also reminds us that he not only knows us, but he loves us. Then when he calls Mary's name and when he calls my name and your name in the midst of those difficult situations, he is reminding us that he is with us. He's with us. Uh, I don't care if it's a fiery furnace. They threw him in, threw the Hebrew boys in, and the king says, wait a minute. Didn't we throw three in there? But as I look in, there's four walking around in there, and one of them appears as the Son of God. He will be with you even in the midst of your fiery furnace. So he reminds Mary, he reminds her, I'm with you. And then lastly, when he calls our name, he reminds us that everything is going to be all right. I know it don't always look like it. I know oftentimes it doesn't seem like things are going to work out. But when he calls your name, when he says Martha, when he says Kevin, when he says uh, Robert, when he says Sandro, whenever he says Vincent, whenever he says Warren, whenever he says Jeff, something ought to move on the inside of you that says even though there's chaos all around me, he called my name, and that means everything's going to be all right. So first we look at Mary, then we look at the risen, risen Christ. Lastly, let's look at Christ's message. Christ's message in 17b through 18. In this verse, Jesus, look at what it says in 17, starting at 17b, it says this. Uh, it say, he says this to Mary. He says, I am ascending to my father and your father. Uh, to my God and your God. Uh, he says to Mary at the beginning of that verse, he says, I have not yet ascended, but go to my brothers and say to them, tell them that this is what's getting ready to happen. I am ascending. He says, go and tell. Jesus instructs Mary to go and tell the disciples that he is alive and preparing to ascend to his father. This is his message to her. This would indeed be a word of hope and encouragement for the beleaguered and bewildered disciples who didn't know what to do because their Savior, they thought, had died. John believes he's been resurrected, but he doesn't know what's going to happen next. And so Jesus, when Mary recognizes him, says to Mary, go tell. I submit to you that this is always the commission to those who have been impacted by the risen Savior. He doesn't want you to go and be silent. He wants you to go and tell somebody what he has done. He says, go tell my brothers that darkness has given way to light. Go and tell them. He says, uh, if, 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 he says go and reassure them 
that everything's going to be. He says to us, you've met Jesus. Go and share with someone that your darkness has turned to light. And if I could use my sanctified imagination, do y'all have one of those? I think only preachers have those. Some of them call them Holy Ghost imaginations. Y'all heard that before, right? Y'all don't look at me like I'm crazy. I'm not getting ready to say nothing weird now. Don't, don't be thinking, the man I ain't never coming back here. This dude talking about. So listen, if I could, if you would allow me just for a moment, I got a few minutes. If you just allow me for a moment to use my sanctified imagination, if I could do that, I would imagine that he might say to her, go and recite this anonymous poem when you get to the disciples. Recite this poem to them. Flourish the trumpets. The living Savior comes. Roll the victory cadence on a thousand drums. Let the anthem swell from a thousand tongues. He is living. He is living. The Lord of light, he is alive. Go tell them that chapter 19 with somber and bowed down heads has now given way to chapter 20. And as I continue to use my Holy Ghost imagination. I can just imagine that what might have come to mind is that psalm that David writes, the 24th psalm, where at the end he says, I know your heads are bowed down right now, but lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is? The king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts? Tell them that, Mary, when you go. Tell them to lift up your head, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for getting up. Thank you for rising. Thank you for chapter 20. Thank you for not leaving us in 19. Thank you for making a way out of no way. Thank you, Lord, for new life, for another chance, for new mercies, for new grace. In Jesus' name, amen.